Well, morning everyone. Great to be here. Good to see you. Well done for making it through the rain here. Um, we're going to start this morning with a personality test. Hey, that's all right. You may have seen that there's quite a few of these online that you can do these days, um, particularly if you're on Facebook. There's a load. It's amazing what you can learn about yourself, actually, I've found, through these personality tests. It's quite incredible. See, according to the wisdom of Facebook, if I was a character from Harry Potter, I'd be Albus Dumbledore. Can't even say his name. That's, that's not bad, is it? And if I was a character from Star Wars, I'd be Luke Skywalker, which I was quite, quite pleased about that one. <laughs> well, that's the question, isn't it? I don't know. Which one are you, Liz? <laughs> There's all kinds of different ones, from Disney princesses to what's your favourite colour. My personal favourite has to be which member of One Direction are you? Or even the best one is probably um, who is your Middle-earth boyfriend? Uh, just the mind boggles with the kind of things that w- people can work out today. But we're, we're going to do a, a quick personality test as we start today, if that's all right. We're going to read a story today, see, um, which continues our series in Luke, in Luke chapter 10. And it's a story with two main characters. The two main characters are sisters. They're called Mary and Martha. And as we read the first part of the story, I want you to think about which one you relate to most. Do you relate to Mary most or do you relate to Martha most? So let's read. We're going to read from Luke 10, uh, starting from verse 38. We're reading from the New Living Translation, um, which you can follow on the screen if you'd like. Okay, so Jesus visits Martha and Mary. As Jesus and the disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem, they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. Her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to help me. Okay, we're not going to go on yet. Just going to keep it there. So so, so picture the scene. Jesus comes with his disciples to the home of Martha and Mary. Martha's cooking the dinner. She's, uh, you know, doing a great job. She's making the dinner, making sure everyone's provided for. Mary comes in, sits at Jesus' feet. Martha comes in, does this outburst. And then, uh, and then, you know, that, that's where we're up to in the story. So from that information, which, which would you uh, relate to most, do you think? And I'm going to get you to be brave and put your hand up. So who would relate more to Martha in this story? And who would relate more to Mary in this story? And there's obviously quite a few abstentions, but that's fine, whatever. No one's looking, just for interest's sake. So, okay, so there's a bit of a spread there in terms of what people have said, they, who they can relate to. And so... What's going on in this story then? Clearly, there's quite a bit of sibling rivalry going on here. Okay, I've, I, I've never had any sisters, but I've got two young daughters who are four and two, and so I'm learning quite a lot about how sibling rivalry between sisters can work and how strong it can be. Sometimes I just, you, know, you just leave them in a room playing um, for a short time, and it doesn't take long before there's some kind of squabble or argument over a toy or something like that. It's, just, it's something that happens, isn't it? And obviously, that's a dynamic that's going on here in the story, sibling rivalry. But... I can't get away from the fact that this that's quite an awkward moment, actually, this. So a minute ago, Martha's welcoming Jesus into her home. Everything's going well. He's teaching. He's in full flow. And then suddenly, it's like the atmosphere is cut to pieces with this outburst. It's like she bursts in and uh, interrupts Jesus in full flow. It would be like, here I am preaching here this morning, and someone running in at the back and saying, Stop! Wait! The, the urn's broken. We can't have any tea and coffee at the end. What are we going to do? Someone help us. <laughs> Which obviously would be a disaster, right? <laughs> but it would, it's, it's that kind of thing Jesus is teaching, Jesus is talking and suddenly like Martha cuts across and interrupts him so it's a moment of dramatic tension in the story, it's like all eyes would have kind of looked to Martha and gone what's going on here 
And then, of course, they would have turned to Jesus and said, right, what's the teacher going to say about this? Now, I think if we were honest, we'd probably rewrite the end of the story and make it look a little different than it actually does. So I think um, it could look, if we rewrote, rewrote the story, it could look a little bit like this. Okay, Martha comes in. She says, Jesus, tell Mary to help me. You know, she's just sitting here. Tell her to help me. Jesus' response would be something along these lines. Take note, my disciples, and learn from the examples of Mary and Martha. These two sisters between them are displaying the perfect balance of what I want you to be like. Mary, on the one hand, is a reflector. She knows how to practice my presence. She knows the importance of just being as well as doing. She shows us the value of quiet contemplation. Martha, on the other hand, she's a real server. She understands what it means to get her hands dirty. She's an activist. She's a doer. She knows the value of behind-the-scenes ministry. Take notes and recognize that both of these women display virtues that I want you to show as my disciples. I think, if we're honest, we might want to rewrite the end of the story like that, but that's not how it goes. We have to look at what the Bible says. We have to look at what Jesus says. So reading on from verse 41, after Martha's outburst, the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about. Mary has discovered it and it will not be taken away from her. Now on first reading, you may think, especially if you related to anything I just said, you may think, Martha seems to get a bit of a bad deal here. Surely she's got a point, hasn't she? Surely, especially if you're one of the, the people who put your hands up and say you can relate to Martha more, you might think, oh, this is a bit of an odd response. Surely, kind of, she's got a point. Why does Jesus kind of not endorse her and yet he endorses what Mary does? Well, what we need to do at the beginning, right at the outset of the story, is get one thing really straight, and that is that this story is not about different types of spirituality. Okay, it's not about the virtues of a servant hearted follower of Jesus on the one hand and a reflective, contemplative style of follower of Jesus on the, other, on the other hand. It's not a story about personality types. If you think about it, if you look at, into it a little deeply, it can't be that. It can't be a story about personality types because it's clear from Jesus' response that Martha's actually got something a little bit wrong here. She's worried, she's stressed, she's upset, and Jesus endorses the actions of her sister rather than her. And yet we know from elsewhere in the Gospels that clearly serving... Actively doing stuff for God is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must be the servant of all. He himself declared that he came to be served. Sorry, he came to serve and not to serve. Jesus is the servant king. He shows and demonstrates the value of service in the most incredible way. He, he, he gave his life for us. He ultimately did the ultimate act of service in sacrificing his life, laying it down for us. So it's clearly good. To, to be a Martha in that sense, in terms of a personality type. James, uh, the, the apostle also in his book, um, makes it quite clear as well as if we needed any more uh, uh, convincing. In verses, chapters 1 and 2 of his book, he says, don't just be a listener, be a doer of the word. You can't have faith without deeds. So if this story was about different preferences and personality types in followers of Jesus, then surely it would end a little differently. Surely it wouldn't turn out so bad for Martha. So, so the question is left, well, what is it about then? What is it about? If it's not about this, what is it about? Well, this story is a story about priorities. 
Okay, Martha and Mary have got different priorities in life. When Jesus comes to their home, it's like these priorities are brought to the surface and exposed. Martha, on the one hand, her priority is to satisfy her culture. Mary's priority is to satisfy her hunger. What do I mean by this? Well, let's have a look at each of the sisters in turn. Let's have a look a little deeper into the story and draw out what's going on here. Okay, so we'll first of all look at Martha, look at the example of Martha. So how is she satisfying her culture? All right, well, Martha here is influenced by a number of things, and it's important to get a few factors in place to help us understand. Sometimes when we read a a passage of Scripture, if we just look at it straight and take it on its face value, we can't quite understand a lot of the the nuances of what it would have meant in its original context, so we have to look at what it meant at the time. First century Mediterranean people were oriented from a very early age to seek honour and to avoid shame. It was an honour and shame culture. We live in a more of a kind of good and bad, right and wrong kind of culture. This was more of an honour and shame culture. So it meant that people were very sensitive to public recognition and public reproach. Very important to them. Secondly, private hospitality was, was esteemed as a really high moral kind of virtue. So you had to... Um, you had to do your best whenever you practice hospitality. It was a, the Roman Empire at that time. There were lots of people travelling around. It was, it was quite usual for people to entertain strangers in their home, to entertain people they didn't know. Um, not, not a lot of people had money to pay for inns and hotels and things like that. So it was very o- a common thing for people to open their homes to show hospitality to strangers. And the expectation was that it would be grand in style. It would be your very best. You wouldn't just kind of give them a tin of soup and say, there you go, there's a sofa, you can sleep on that. It would be like the best hospitality that you could possibly give. Now, when you add that to the fact that Bethany, which is the setting for this story, um, was a a little village about two miles from Jerusalem, uh, and it meant that all of the Jews that were scattered around the Roman Empire would come to Jerusalem regularly for pilgrimages. They'd come for the Passover every year, whatever it was. So that means that lots of people would pass through Bethany as like the last staging post on the way to Jerusalem. And that meant that Bethany would have been a place that was used to practicing hospitality. The, the residents of Bethany would have been used to opening their homes to, to strangers and to entertaining people. So out of all of the, kind of, out of all of the villages and the towns in that area in, in Judea, it was kind of like the place where the bar was set the highest because lots of people would have come through there and received hospitality. Martha, we're told, well, we assume she's the older sister because it says that she opened her home, so we assume that, that she's the kind of the head of the household. From that, we can also assume she, there's no husband around. So she would have felt the responsibility of this. These factors would have kind of weighed on her. They would have been on her mind. A couple with the role of women in that culture, which would have been to cook and to prepare food, to do the hospitality side of things, um, she would have felt that. So it's like of all the households in that village, of all the households in Bethany, Jesus decided to accept her invitation and come into her house. And, and this all meant that her, her culture was telling her, this is a big deal and this is worthy of your very best. You've got to get this right. There was a sense that her whole community would have been watching to see how she did. How's she got on? How's Martha going to fare? How's she going to do? Is she going to get it right or is she going to mess it up? So with all these factors and this knowledge in, in mind, um, you could say that in preparing this meal, Martha, in taking it seriously you know, and in doing her best and, and in being kind of focused on it, that she was actually just being a good first century Jewish woman. So you might be able to relate to her even more perhaps on that front. 
And you might also say, well, yeah, okay, these things may have been taxing. They may have taken her concentration. The responsibility would have weighed on her somewhat. But, but surely that's fine. It just came with the territory. That's what she had to do. Therefore, isn't it, a little underst- isn't it a little understandable that she was somewhat distracted? And this is where the irony comes in here. You see, because what I said about the Roman world and people practicing hospitality, linked into that was the idea and the belief that was widely held that if you practice hospitality to strangers, there was a possibility that you might one day entertain a stranger who was very important. There was a belief that you had to give your best to every stranger that came through the door because it might be a great hero or it might be a deity. It might be some kind of god who entered your house. And that's why it was always the best that you had to give. And isn't that the irony here? That it's not what she was distracted by that was the issue. It was who she was distracted from. Bottom line, fundamental truth underlying all that cultural background was that for Martha, Jesus was in her house. The Son of God had come into her house and was teaching, and she was distracted. That is the tragedy. Her adherence to her culture had meant that she was missing something that was far more important than her culture. And what that teaches us is that when we, when we put our culture above our king, a very dangerous transition can take place in our minds. Okay, this is very important. So when, we, uh, when Martha prioritized her culture above Jesus, in her mind it was like Jesus became less important than he actually was. And it's like she completely lost perspective, even to the point that a meal became more important than Jesus. So the preparation of a meal that would be eaten and then forgotten about became more important than the fact that she had the presence of God in her home. And you know what? In that, Martha fell into quite a bad trap, actually. Because if you look at the way she spoke to Jesus publicly, it was actually quite, it's quite shocking, really. Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? Tell her to help me. That's the tone she ends up taking with the Son of God. Worried, upset, angry, she ends up commanding Jesus. So she's, Martha's got herself into a real pickle here. She's, she's gone from the joy and the honor of the Son of God coming into her home to the stress and the shame, the public humiliation of interrupting him and commanding him to fall in line with her priorities. But Jesus' response shows us a lot about Jesus. It shows us a lot about what he's like. How, how is he going to respond? And, you know, he could have rebuked her. He could have said, Martha, I'm in the middle of teaching. Can you just deal with it? But obviously, that, that's not our God. That's not how he responds. He responds with amazing, tender love and compassion towards her. So in, in other translations, he just repeats her name twice. Martha, Martha. That's like a loving, tender kind of way of speaking to someone. He just affirms her in that moment. He doesn't rebuke her. And he just puts his finger on and highlights what's going on for her. You're worried, you're upset about many things, but he doesn't rebuke her. But what he does do is he endorses the actions of Mary. Okay, He says one thing is needed and Mary's found it. So let's go on to look at Mary and her example and what, what's going on with her and how she is seeking to satisfy her hunger. <laughs> the interesting thing about Mary is when you, when you consider this whole, these cultural factors... Mary is actually uh, doing the exact opposite to Martha. So Martha is trying to meet the demands of her culture. Mary crosses all of the boundaries of her culture. She, she responds in the exact opposite way. 
So a couple of other things which are important to know about the culture of the day, particularly in terms of how that culture viewed women. Firstly, um, is say that, it, that the gender boundaries were so defined that it came right down to even the kind of geography of your house. So in, in every sort of Jewish house at that time, there would have been male space and female space. So the male space was kind of the public room where you'd entertain guests and where you'd, you, you'd speak to people where the men would meet. And then there'd be other rooms which outsiders didn't see, including the kitchen, and that would be the realm of the women. So Mary crossed an invisible line. And when she did that, she did something that culturally would have been unspeakable. It would have been a massive faux pas. And for her to do it as an unmarried woman made it even more controversial to that culture. Second thing to consider is that um, the role of women in terms of education in that culture. They didn't receive formal education. In fact, they, women were not deemed worthy of receiving instruction from a rabbi. So they wouldn't have ever gone to a rabbi, become their disciple, followed them in the same way that a man would be able to. That was just how it was. So when it says that Mary sat at the Lord's feet, that's really significant. So this means something different to it than it would to us. So for us, it kind of means, you know, like almost like adoring a pop star or a sports idol or maybe like how your dog might sit at your feet and like wag their tail and look up at you adoringly. That's not really what it means. To sit at someone's feet in that context meant to become their disciple. It meant to follow them, to listen to them and to become their student. If any of you are um, studying, if you're at school or at university or whatever, you could say that you're sitting at the feet of your teacher. I don't know if that sounds a bit, a bit weird, but that's, that's kind of what it would have meant in, the, in that culture. You're sitting at their feet, learning from them. So again, what Mary did was massively controversial. She was behaving as if she was a man. She was behaving as if she had um, the same rights, the same privileges as a man in her culture. It was, it was overt. It was very conspicuous. It wasn't like she kind of put on a fake beard and pretended to have a low voice and came and tried to hide in with the men. No, it would have been really visible. An unmarried woman walking into male space and sitting herself down at the feet of Jesus. It's like everyone in the room would have been like, what is going on here? This is crazy. What is this woman up to? So when Martha burst in with her complaint, from the men's perspective, who are also immersed in that culture, they would have been thinking the same thing. They'd have been on Martha's side. They'd be like, yeah, here, here. Get back in the kitchen. Come on, carry on, help your sister. (laughs) That that, that would have been closer to how they would have seen things. But again, they would have been wondering, well, what's the master going to say about this? Is he going to uphold what we all think is right, or is he going to do something else? And this is the most amazing part. This is the heart of this story that's so absolutely wonderful, is Jesus' response. So if the Good Samaritan was radical, you know, if Jesus was saying that, that people from outside the Jewish nation could know him and could be his disciples, this is something else. This is Jesus saying, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what your society says about you, it doesn't matter what gender you are or what background you're from, you're welcome in my kingdom. My kingdom is for everyone. And... You know, Mary really got something about Jesus. That was what made her do what she did. She got something about this kingdom he was speaking about. She got the simple fact that it's for everyone, that Jesus will accept her, that Jesus accepts anyone regardless of who they are. And the fact that Mary put her culture second and prioritized her hunger for Jesus first, the fact that she prioritized him above all things, that's the thing that he commended her for. That's the thing that he was so pleased with. That's the thing that he so loved. There's another thing going on here. So when Jesus says, um, Mary's chosen the one thing that matters and it won't be taken from her, the actual Greek, it kind of uses 
it's kind of funny, really, because he uses a food analogy. He actually says, Mary has chosen the better portion. That's the exact translation. Mary's chosen the better portion. So it's almost like, again, for Martha, it's like Jesus pointing out gently her, the craziness of what she's doing. Like Martha's stressing out about a feast. Her sister is feasting on Jesus. Her sister has realized that there's something much more important there. And, you know, she didn't care what she had to do. She didn't care what barriers she had to cross, how many noses she had to put out of joint. She recognized that there was something so significant, so beautiful, so amazing in her presence, in her living room, that she wanted to do whatever it took to get before him and to listen to him. She was hungering for Jesus. And she was feasting on Jesus. What I love about this story, again, in terms of the way it's told, is Mary's actually a silent character. We never hear her voice. We never hear what she has to say for herself. But if we did hear a response, the amazing thing is that she could have voiced what any number of the psalmists voiced. And I was looking through the psalms, and there's so many different psalms that could be relevant to Mary's response here. If Luke was to say, right, okay, let's see what Mary says next. She could have said any one of these things. So, for example, Psalm 119 um, is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's written by uh, a, a scholar who he would have been, like, uh, obsessed with the Word of God. If you read it through, it's just he's all about the Word of God. And in verse 57, he says these words, You are my portion, Lord. You are my portion, Lord. And again, in verse 72, The words from your mouth are more precious to me than thousands of pieces of silver and gold. It's like Mary could have said those words. That's exactly what she was embodying. That's exactly the actions that she was taking when she sat at the feet of Jesus. She knew that he was her portion. She knew that there was nothing that compared with him, and it didn't matter what boundaries she had to cross. It didn't matter how many people that she upset or, or how many faux pas she committed culturally. Jesus loved it. So, You can see then how Martha got it wrong and how Mary got it right. Now, the thing about priorities is that they are something that's within our control. They're not something that just happened to us. We don't kind of have priorities thrust upon us. They're something that come from within us. They're not like strong feelings that can overwhelm us. They're something that we set. It's a decision. Our priorities come from us. The word worship... Uh, the, the way it's rooted in the English is uh, comes from the word for worth. So it's like worth-ship, almost. It means that you will worship the things that you attach the most worth to. And that is something that you just, you vote with your feet, you know. Whatever you say, what you worship, it comes out of what you really attach worth to. And it's amazing here that, obviously, Mary had got the right thing. She realized that the one worthy of worship, the one that with the most worth, was Jesus so we need to get our priorities straight. We need to get our priorities straight. We need to make sure we're prioritizing hunger for God above our culture and satisfying what our culture says. Now, clearly the example of Martha shows us that we can get a bit mixed up in that. So she got a bit mixed up. She wanted to welcome Jesus in. She wanted to do the best for him. She wanted to show her worship to him, no doubt. But she got a bit confused with things along the way. And she ended up kind of barking this command at him and wanting him to slip in with her priorities. That's what she ended up doing. And, you know, we can all do that. We can all do that. I mean, I'm sure all of us can relate to that a little bit. All of us can see how easy it could be for that to happen for us. So, so what do we need to be aware of then? What kind of things do we need to kind of look out for in our own culture and in our own experience to make sure that we're not letting that happen? Well, 
A few things to say about culture. So culture is not evil. It's not a bad thing. It's not like we need to flee from it and sort of go into a bunker and like be like, oh, the world over there, and we're not engaging with it. Uh, culture's not, not, not necessarily a bad thing. But what culture is like, it's a bit like going to the cinema to watch a film. You know, when you go to the cinema, you... You, you, you go in and you, you go into this theatre and you put your 3D glasses on or whatever. And it's, it's a submersive experience. You are completely emerged in that film. For that two hours, it's like nothing else matters. You're just focusing on that film. You're, you know, you're completely submerged in it. And it's a feast to the senses. You know, all of your senses are stimulated when you go to the cinema. So it exerts an influence over you. Cultures like that. You know, you're, all of us, whatever culture we're from, um, will influence us. Our background, our upbringing, our parents, our, our ethnic uh, background, our education, um, arts, music, literature, friends, school, all those things influence us. Uh, and it's like second nature to us, but, but they, they, they do influence us. Now, like any movie, all cultures have got good bits and bad bits. And what we need as Christians is we need the Word of God to be our yardstick. We need to be able to interpret culture through the Bible. And, and, and in that, we can celebrate what's good. There there's, might be good stuff about our culture. When we look at this and we consider the culture of first century Judaism, probably most of us will think there's some bad things there, right? There's some bad things in that culture. So every culture has got good things and bad things about it. And what we need to do is celebrate what's good and engage with and challenge things that aren't good. That's what we want to do as Christians, right? We want to be involved, engaged in culture. But it's a fine line that we need to walk. And what we need to do is make sure that we're not putting it first above God. We need to make sure that God is first. We need to make sure that he's the priority above culture. You see, what happens for us, if we start to look for culture to answers, you end up, you end up seeking what God... Ha- Sorry, excuse me. If you look to your culture for answers, if you prioritize that over seeking what God has to say, you can end up getting a bit confused like Martha. And you can end up imagining a Jesus that conforms to your culture. The problem is, what we've got as a culture, we've got a lot of Jesuses. There's a lot of Jesuses out there, and they're all slightly tainted and coloured by culture. Okay, there's there's a a right-wing Jesus, and there's a left-wing Jesus, and there might be a Jesus of advertising, there might be a Jesus of, of various different things, a skewed version of him. A few examples, our culture hates organized religion, so... There's a Jesus out there that will say, hey, don't worry about it. That's fine. You don't need church. Actually, you can just follow me on your own. That's prioritizing culture over hunger. There's a Jesus out there that says, okay, success. Yeah, success is the top goal. So if you follow me, you'll be successful. You'll be healthy, wealthy. You'll never have any troubles. And ultimately, when people see you succeeding, they'll think, hey, great. I want to go with you. I want to go with that Jesus. That's prioritizing culture over hunger. There's a Jesus that says that we're all equal human beings with equal rights and freedom to make our own choices, including in the realms of gender and sexuality. So you end up with a Jesus that says, follow me, but do what you want with your body. Make whatever decisions you want to make about your sexuality, about your gender, about your sexual activities. It's your choice. That's prioritizing culture over hunger. And as individuals, we can do this as well. And what that ends up is that, is that we start behaving like Martha and we start to try and command the real Jesus to fit in line with our own priorities. Lord, don't you care? Things aren't going to plan. Come on, Lord. Ever prayed a prayer like that? I have. When you let your success, your rights, your, your kids, your, your personal freedom, your, 
your sexual fulfillment, your things come before Jesus in your list of priorities, you can get into that same pickle that Martha did. Because our culture is such a strong influence, it's like slightly polluted air. Okay, if you get, um, if you get affected by carbon monoxide poisoning, it can be very serious. It can be a silent killer. You don't even know that you've got it. You're, you're influenced by it, and it can affect your whole bloodstream. And, and what, what the antidote is, if, if it's suspected that you get carbon monoxide poisoning, the antidote is you have to go and have pure oxygen. You have to go to hospital or whatever and just inhale oxygen. So the antidote to that poisonous influence is the pure oxygen, the real thing. And that is what we need. We need the real Jesus We need the Jesus of the Bible. We need the real revealed Jesus that God has revealed to us through the Holy Spirit in Scripture. He's the one that helps us navigate this difficult terrain. He's the one that helps us to realize what's good and what's bad. We need him. We need him. He's the real thing. And that is why we need to stoke the flames of this hunger for God. We need to make sure that we're hungering for God before all things. We need to be like Mary in the sense of, of seeking God and hungering for God. So how can we satisfy our hunger for God? I've just got three things to suggest in terms of uh, Mary's example of what we can do to seek God and to satisfy our hunger for him above the desire to please what our culture says. So the first question you can ask yourself is, well, what boundaries do I need to cross? Okay, what boundaries do I need to cross? If you seek to satisfy your hunger for Jesus first, then you will step over some boundaries. You will get some funny looks. You will stick out. That's just what it's like. Sometimes following Jesus is counter-cultural, is, is absolutely the opposite of what the culture says. So maybe, you know, to stand up for the real Jesus and to follow the real Jesus uh, might mean that you take a different line on some of those examples I was giving earlier. In terms of, well, the Bible says something different about, about church. The Bible says that, you know, we need each other, that we need to be together. We need to be a community. We need to commit. Or maybe, like the Bible says, that actually, you know, there is difference between man and woman and that God's ordained sexuality to be in a particular way. That's massively radical. If you say that in our culture, if you say that to your friends, as I'm sure you know, that's, that goes against the grain hugely. Maybe in your family, perhaps you're the only one who believes. Maybe you, you, you know, you've got uh, relatives who are not Christians. Perhaps when you get, went home and saw them over Christmas, it, it was difficult because actually you're going against the grain and they don't understand you. They don't understand the way you're trying to live. Maybe you face a boundary of misunderstanding or of, or of patronization or whatever and you have to step over that boundary in order to keep seeking Jesus. Maybe at work you face a situation in a culture where Actually, the vibe is, do you know what? Work is all about surviving. Work is about getting through the week. Work is about just getting to Friday and then your real life could begin. And that means that you just survive. You just do whatever you can to get you through. You just do the bare minimum and you don't ever give anything extra. And so you coming into that context as a Christian saying, well, actually, no, when I come to work, I want to honor God. I want to worship God. I want to do my best. Not, for any, not because I'm ambitious or because I want to get ahead, not for my own benefit, just because that's the, good, that's the right thing to do, just because that's what God teaches me I should do. Like if you live like that at work, you're going you're gonna to come across some, 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 ob- some barriers, some obstacles. People are not going to understand. People are going to be like, that's a bit strange. What's going on there? Maybe it's people you live with. Perhaps if you live in a shared house, um, perhaps, um, you know, 
that can be quite difficult in terms of spending time with God. Maybe for you to go and spend time in your, in your room on your own, maybe worshipping God or, or singing along to a worship CD or, or reading the Bible or praying, perhaps your housemates are going to be like, what? what's that all about? What's going on there? Like They're all in the, in the main room like playing Call of Duty or something. And you're like praying in your room. What? Like That's weird. That goes massively against the grain. And maybe that's a barrier that you need to cross. So think about that. What barrier have you got across? The classic one that we all face is, is time and busyness. So our culture, that's, that's a big factor. We're all busy. We've all got a lot of stuff on our plate, whatever, um, whoever we are and wh- whatever our situation. So we need to f- find a way to cross that barrier. We need to cultivate the hunger for God that pushes through that barrier, that pushes through. So maybe I'll ask you a practical question to anchor that. How do you organize your time? How do you organize your, your timetable and your diary? When, it, when we started the, the year and you got your diary in front of you, t- 2014, and it's stretching out in front of you, what are the first things that you put in your diary? Did you put your holidays in there first? Did you put your work commitments in there first? Did you put like weekends away to see family? What was it you put in there first? And was, is there any consideration given in your weekly schedule to God? And to the fact that you're living in relationship with this glorious God who is your portion, who is the one that satisfies. And we think about that. How can you organize your life around the fact that you're in relationship with God before all things? And the great thing is that this story tells us is that if you cross those barriers, Jesus will receive you. He won't turn you away. He won't turn you away. He's, he'll say to you, you know what? You've chosen what's better, and it will not be taken away from you. Second thing, which I've already kind of alluded to, is keep seeking God. And this might sound like an obvious one, but now as, I, as I've kind of been thinking about this, I've realized that, you know, when I first became a Christian, um, I was seeking God. It was like I was looking out for answers, and then I became a Christian. I had an experience of Jesus, and it was like I'd found something. I'd found, discovered God. I'd discovered the grace of God, and there's a sense of finding truth. But what I've realized as I've gone on in my Christian life is that you never actually stop seeking God. As a Christian, you, you find, you know, you know stuff, you understand stuff, but you still have to pursue God. That's part of being a Christian, pursuing him, going after him, seeking him with all your heart. And it's not like God's hiding himself. It's not like you have to seek him because he's like really elusive. He's there, he's revealed himself. It's all there for us. It's all there for us in Scripture. It's all there for us in the gift of his Holy Spirit. We can, we can know and enjoy as much of God as we want. The issue is it's the distractions and the cares and the worries and the cultural factors that can relegate Jesus to second. Those are the things we need to watch out for. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian um, and you can relate a little bit to that idea of seeking God. Perhaps you're here because you're, 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 you're looking into things and you're kind of wondering what this is all about. I just want to encourage you, if that's you, that the way is open. Again, Jesus isn't hiding himself. He says that he gives an invitation and says, come to me if you're weary and I will never turn you away. I will never reject you or say you're not good enough for me or say that you're, you, know, you haven't done the right thing or that you're not the right type of person. Jesus will always receive you. And I just want to encourage you, if that's you, that we have something called Alpha that starts tomorrow, actually. We're starting it tomorrow uh, in Selly Oak, in, a, in a, the, the Selly Sausage a place in Selly Oak. You can come along, have a free meal. Um, there's a talk about something about Christianity, opportunity to discuss 
and to explore more. So if you're looking into um, who it, what it is to be a Christian, then please come along to Alpha. Thirdly and finally, make Jesus your passion. There's an amazing sense in this in which nothing need hold us back. It's not like God saying, you know, everything in moderation, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and make sure there's balance in this. You know what? You can make Jesus your obsession. You can be utterly obsessed with him. There's absolutely nothing holding us back. We can absolutely feast on him. He is our portion. I love that. I love that phrase. It's like a portion is something that you get given. We all get given a portion. And it's like God is our portion. The unlimited God is our portion. So it's like he's enough for us. We can feast on him. As, as A.W. Tozer said, you can have as much of God as you want. <laughs> you know, there's a sense in which you can just, you can um, get more and more into God as you, as you feast on him, as you seek him. He satisfies. He satisfies. He's the only one who satisfies our hunger for life, our hunger for forgiveness and, and for freedom and, and for purpose. And, you know, just to final kind of statements now to, to apply this. It really feels like, as a church, God's speaking to us about this stuff at the moment. He really wants to, like, take us aside and remind us as a people that whatever he's doing through us and whatever plans he's got for us, whatever we're going to see happen in the next year, that actually he wants us to have a strong foundation of knowing him as our joy, of knowing him as our portion. And, and that's what he wants for all of us, to, to just enjoy him, to just bask in him, to just uh, gaze on him. So for you as an individual, maybe think about what barriers you have to cross and what do you need to do to seek after the authentic Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible.